0: when I was earlier in my career, had I seen more Asian Americans and and really Indian women in the workplace, in leadership roles, being their full authentic selves, maybe wearing Indian jewelry or Indian clothing, or maybe, you know, speaking on the phone to their family in their native tongue and not feeling the need to hide it. If I could have seen themselves bringing their whole selves to work, perhaps I wouldn't have thought that I was white. Perhaps I wouldn't have felt the need to show up as white all the time, and I would have felt more authentic bringing my full self to work.
1: Hey everyone, this is Jay.
2: And this is Angie.
1: And welcome to another episode of Across the Lines. A place where we have candid and vulnerable conversations with Pan-Asian American leaders about identity, work, and the confluence of the two.
2: Join us on a journey to amplify their voices, humanize their achievements, and share their wisdom. Whether you're looking for advice or just want to hear leaders who've been there and done that share their personal and professional stories, you've come to the right place. Seema Kumar is the CMO of New Relic the leading observability platform that helps engineering teams improve the usability of their software. Prior to New Relic, SEMA spent more than 18 years leading product marketing, brand, events, and demand generation at companies like Service Channel and Salesforce.
1: In this episode, we speak with Seema about... In this episode, we speak with SEMA about the following. Why she tried to fit into the model minority stereotype while growing up? How she learned to embrace vulnerability as a leadership superpower by letting go of the focus on external perception she was raised with. And how she shifted from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset.
2: Seema, thank you so, so much for coming onto the show today. We are really excited for this conversation with you. And we'd like to start it off by asking you what your favorite dish was growing up.
0: Hey Angie, it's such a great question because in a lot of Asian communities, food plays such a central role in our culture. And my favorite dish growing up was actually a South Indian dish called dosa. And it's funny because I'm North Indian and yet my favorite food growing up was a South Indian dish. And dosa is basically a really thin, flat, crispy, almost like a pancake that's made out of lentils and rice and it's got potatoes in the center of it. And then you serve it with sort of a stew called sambar um and it's something that was so special for me that every time we would go visit family in India one of the first things that they would plan in our first couple of days upon arrival was to go out to a restaurant that was really well known for serving dosa we would all go and have that together so that was my favorite dish growing up
1: I know I know right now you're uh, based in Vancouver Canada um, and I have to ask have you been able to find any good dosa places around the lower mainland
0: You know, unfortunately, because of the pandemic, we haven't been, uh, I think, as exploratory maybe of some of the food options here, but I have gotten a lot of recommendations on where to go and get DOSA, and now that things are opening back up and that I am vaccinated, it, it is definitely high on our list
1: i follow up offline with a couple of suggestions of my own. I grew up in a, in a predominantly Indian, uh, uh, like upbringing, um, in, um, Surrey or like near, near Surrey. And so there's a ton of really great uh, also places over there. I know it was important for you uh, to come onto this podcast and, um, I wanted to kind of tee it up to you and, and just ask what the motivation was to come here and, and to speak about your upbringing, your professional career in relation to your Asian identity. What was the motivation to come on the podcast?
0: Yeah, when I first learned about this podcast, there were two things that came up for me. One is that I am on a fairly recent journey of exploring what it means to be an Asian American and understanding the negative consequences of having been labeled the model minority growing up and throughout my adulthood and throughout my career. I had always seen that as a positive thing, right? Who wouldn't want to be the model? And it really, it's only in the last year or so that I have begun to unpack the negative messages and stereotypes that come with that and the negative impact it has on the Asian American community. And so as I'm on this journey, it was important to me to speak about it openly so that others who might be starting their own journeys or questioning whether they should be going on a journey might be able to hear my authentic perspective on that. And then second, I have been spending some time up in Vancouver, Canada recently. And just a couple of weeks ago, there was a a terrible tragedy that happened where a young man filled with hate drove his vehicle into a family of five who were Muslims and in the process killed most of the family, a grandparent, two parents, a daughter, and a nine-year-old boy lies in a hospital fighting for his life with no family left. And it was heartbreaking for me to see that a person motivated by by hate, which I think many of us know is, is really fueled by a lack of knowledge, a lack of understanding, maybe ignorance and otherizing, perpetuated such a terrible crime. And so the more that I can share my story and help others understand my community and people like me to remove that hate or to neutralize the hate.
2: We're so grateful that you've chosen to come onto the show and share your journey and your experience, because I'm sure it'll be a, a really shining light for others out there who are going through the same journey. And I'm curious for you, Seema, do you feel like there was a specific turning point or catalyst? or? a specific impetus for you to start thinking more critically about your identity and the model minority myth. Do you feel like there was a moment of that for you?
0: Yeah, it it really happened for me, I think, earlier this year when we began to see an increase in the number of hate crimes against Asian-Americans. And that was, that was really when I started to dig into this idea of a bamboo ceiling and this idea of a model minority. And I decided to go learn about where did the term model minority come from and who coined it and why, and what purpose did it serve and what negative things come along with it. And that was when I started to learn, you know, The model minority concept was introduced in the 60s and 70s to showcase that certain ethnic groups were sort of the model, the good ones, and others were not. And so it certainly came at the expense of Black Americans. And then it also came with it, this idea that you are good at math and science, but you are maybe bad at sports, that, you know, you're good at crunching the numbers, but Maybe you're not so good at some of the softer skills or at managing or leading people. It also includes this notion that you work hard and you keep your head down. You don't rock the boat. You don't ask for what you need. You don't speak up. You don't create conflict. You just, you go along to get along. And as I now look back and reflect on the earlier days in my career, I can see where that certainly influenced How I showed up, right? I certainly, I certainly tried to fit the the stereotype of the model minority.
1: I'm curious, Seema, as as you were growing up, even just in your personal life, was Asian American identity important in your upbringing? Was it important in your family life? And and I'm curious also for you to touch on this idea of, I don't know, like selective ignorance, because as you bring awareness to some of these more sensitive topics, especially Later in our careers, later in our lives, it, it's really hard to think about these ideas and topics and, and to go back and reflect on how it may have negatively impacted you in the past, how it may have positively impacted you in the past and how you can kind of adapt your own perception and your way of thinking for the future. I just want to hear you talk about this idea of like selective ignorance and, and, and going through this process of bringing awareness to something, which is not necessarily easy to bring awareness to.
0: I love that term selective ignorance. And in my mind, that perfectly captures some of what's wrong with being viewed as a model minority. I certainly had selective ignorance about the fact that I was different. Because when you think of yourself as a model minority, you believe that you fit in with everyone else. And I, now that I reflect on it, I think that for much of my life, I viewed myself as white. I viewed myself as being just like everyone else. And part of that is a survival skill, right? You go along to get along. And so I believed that I was white. And if I was white, then of course there was no discrimination against me. Of course I wasn't different and I would be treated the same as everybody else. And I think all of us want to be treated like everyone else. We want to believe that we're just like everyone else. And so that I think is an area where I had selective ignorance. To answer your second question, yes, Asian American identity was a big part of my life growing up. You know, we spoke Hindi at home. Most of our community around us, my parents' friends and our support system were virtually all Indian. We ate Indian food. My mom was, I would say, somewhat westernized because she did work. She had a career outside of the home. And so, you know, I know other people who growing up as young Indian girls, they weren't allowed to cut their hair and they had to wear long braids every day. And I I didn't have to do that. But there were other parts... Um, of our culture that were incredibly important at home, and there were a lot of things that were said. You know, we don't do that. We're Indian. Indians don't do that, right? And so there was there was definitely this sense of we're we have a different identity. And look, you might wonder how do you reconcile we're Indian we're different from the point I just made of viewing myself as white. Therein lies, I think, the reason that so many of us have these confused identities. There there are sort of the the jokes that Jim, I'm seeing you laughing right now. There's the the acronym, the ABCD, the American born confused they see, right? And they see is what we as Indians refer to ourselves. This is why we're all so confused because we think we're white and yet we are clearly told by our parents at home that we are not.
2: I'm curious for you Seema, did you feel like you grew up in an environment where you almost needed to assimilate and quote unquote be white as a survival mechanism? Was that something that came early on? Or do you feel like that was something that grew more and more salient as you advanced through the workforce and you know, through school and your career and whatnot? Because what I'm hearing from you is also this very strong undercurrent of pride, at, at least at home, in your Indian heritage. Could you tell us a bit about that?
0: Yeah, I, I think I definitely felt a need to assimilate and be like everyone else fairly early on. It was definitely part of survival. And when I reflect on it, I don't think it was conscious. I think it's just something that you, it's something that you do, right? And I'm chuckling. I'm reminded of an incident a few months ago. I have a daughter who's three and we were on the weekend, we were sitting in this home. It was snowing and we were reading and my daughter was holding a book. She picked up a kid's book. And we literally have a picture of a moment where she's holding this book and she's looking over at one of the other grownups to look. At the well, how are they holding the book and how are they reading and she's literally mimicking the reading of this book by a grown up and she was going along to get along she was assimilating right and that's exactly what I did and I think many other people like me did when, when I was younger, but we weren't aware of the fact that we were doing that.
1: That last point made me think about this idea of just like how human beings develop. There's like this idea of mimicry and then self-discovery. A baby is born and they just look around and they make sure that they're just mimicking everything that they see. And then over time, ideally, they can get to a place where they can go through their own self-discovery, identify who they are as people. There's, I haven't even put that much thought into it, but it must, there's so much connection with that idea with the relation to Asian American identity, Asian American upbringing, especially if like you're coming into an, an, a new environment. I'm curious to just hear your perspective on this, like, did this ideology, which only sounds negative when you say it out loud (laughs) because you should not think that you're white, um, did it benefit you at all? And if it didn't, like, how did it negatively impact you in the workforce?
0: This idea of feeling like you have to fit in and mimic what you see around you is one of the reasons that I think representation is so critical. You know, we've all seen that beautiful and I think breathtaking photograph of the young black girl who is staring at the portrait of former first lady, Michelle Obama. And, you know, she's looking at this beautiful portrait thinking, wow, I I can be this person, right? And so I think, you know, when I was earlier in my career, had I seen more Asian Americans and, and really Indian women in the workplace, in leadership roles, being their full authentic selves, maybe wearing Indian jewelry or Indian clothing, or maybe, you know, speaking on the phone to their family in their native tongue and not feeling the need to hide it. If I could have seen themselves bringing their whole selves to work, perhaps I wouldn't have thought that I was white. Perhaps I wouldn't have felt the need to show up as white all the time. And I would have felt more authentic bringing my full self to work. Because if everyone above you is white, and you are looking at them and trying to mimic, then you're going to act white. But if you see people above you who have your culture, and they feel authentic, bringing their whole selves to work, and they bring Indian food to work and they might wear ethnic clothes, then you feel more comfortable being who you are and you don't feel like you need to be white. So that is an area I think of opportunity for all of us Asian American leaders is to provide that representation for those who are coming behind us.
2: Jay and I resonate with that so incredibly much because a core tenet or phrase we keep using for Across the Lines is you can't be what you can't see which is why we're so laser focused on bringing a diverse slate of Pan-Asian American leaders onto the show, because who knows, maybe someone in a younger generation will hear your story or hear someone's story and just be like, wow, that can be me one day. I never thought that path is available, but I see it right in front of me now. So a thousand percent agree and, and see the importance of that. And you know Seema, when I think about representation, I think that goes really hand in hand with this idea of vulnerability which I know is something that you have really grown into in your career over the past few years, especially tying that in tandem to your journey of being your full expressed self at work instead of feeling like you have to fit into this mold of quote unquote being white and showing up as such. Could you talk to us a bit about what that journey looked like for you?
0: Absolutely. In many Asian communities, there is this focus on showing up as Perfect. I, I talk about it as Kevlar or Teflon. There is such a focus on you know what will others in the community think. In Hindi, the refrain is "Lo kya What will people say? Or "Lo kya What will people think? And I, I can see Jaydeep grinning because it's it sounds it's probably pretty familiar, right? Um, these were refrains that were uttered throughout my childhood, practically on a daily basis, and so you are taught to constantly evaluate everything through the lens of what will others think or say about you if you do this. And so I think that is why I initially went into the working world striving for perfection, thinking that I have to show up as perfect. And it was really discouraged for me to be vulnerable. And I think later in my career, as I watched other leaders who were successful, I noticed there were many who were incredibly successful. And when I say successful, I don't mean necessarily like just, you know, driving the stock price up. I mean, successful at building followership. They were the kinds of leaders that other people wanted to work for. They were the kinds of leaders that other people wanted to work with. And what I realized was that they were incredibly vulnerable. They were humble, they shared their foibles, they shared openly, they shared their mistakes, they they openly talked about the fact when they were uncertain of their own abilities. And so I really learned through time that vulnerability is not a weakness, it's a strength. It's actually an incredible strength. And, and I'm now in a place where I actually believe that leading through vulnerability is one of my greatest strengths as a leader. But that is something that, you know, I had to really unlearn this need to show up as perfect all the time and learn vulnerability. And so, you know, there are there are things we learn from our heritage that serve us well, and there are things that don't serve us well in this current environment. I believe wholeheartedly that in the environment that my family came from and where they grew up, that was what you needed to survive. And so I think it came from a good place, but in the world that we live in now, showing up as perfect does not help us connect with others. Right? We connect with other people through pain. Pain and shared difficulty is the Velcro that binds us together. And so showing up with that vulnerability is what helps us connect to people.
2: I really like the analogies you drew there between Teflon versus Velcro. What what that makes me think of, though, is almost this catch-22, and I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on the Seema, where if you think about the classic psychological framework of competence versus warmth, it's almost like you see the leaders at the top demonstrating this incredible warmth and vulnerability, and that's how they inspire followership, but I almost get the sense that as a more junior woman, especially, or a woman of color, vulnerability can be a bit of a double-edged sword as well, where there's so much focus and emphasis on being competent and being seen as someone who can deliver results up until a certain point in your career trajectory, you have to index on that versus indexing on vulnerability. I'd love to hear from you what your thoughts are, are on that and how that played into your journey as you thought about becoming more vulnerable and bringing your whole self to work more and more throughout your career.
0: I agree with you that when you are earlier on in your career, there can be some risks around being too vulnerable. And I think, you know, there's a fine line between being vulnerable. And still showing up as being vulnerable and yet competent, not confident necessarily, but competent, you know, versus being vulnerable and sort of showing that you don't, you don't really know what you're doing, being too disclosing, I guess I would call it. And so I think in the earlier parts of my career, when I started to become vulnerable, I was selective about the types of things that I was vulnerable about, right? So... I think you can think about picking lower risk areas to be vulnerable about. So for example, you might be more um, open and vulnerable about something that's happening in your personal life as opposed to your uncertainty about an initiative or a project that you are working on at work.
1: The selective vulnerability is an interesting topic because depending on the context, maybe after you're competent, then you can be a little more vulnerable. It's, a, it's an interesting one to loop back a little bit to some parts of your own upbringing and your identity and, and how that has helped you in your leadership style. You mentioned vulnerability being something that maybe you had to unlearn a little bit of not being as vulnerable. But you also mentioned there were some things that in your Asian upbringing was really positive what, what were some of those things that you've brought from your own Asian American upbringing that have helped you in your leadership style?
0: There are many things that I think I learned growing up in an Asian American community that have really helped me. I think the first is a really strong work ethic. I was raised by parents who, you know, came to this country with a suitcase of clothing and nothing else and had really no help. And so Got to where they got through sheer determination and hard work and creating their own way. And so, one thing I've definitely benefited from is believing that no one else is going to be there to help me. You know, there's no rich uncle, there's no person up there that's going to make the introductions for me. It's really just up to me. And I've got to do a lot, I'll do it all under my own steam and work incredibly hard and push through sort of any obstacles. And so, I think I got a tremendous amount of perseverance and fortitude. Second is that in Asian American communities, family is incredibly important. It's really the most important thing. And so because of that, I think I I really lean into learning about people's families, getting to know them as a part of a family unit, as opposed to just them as an individual. And I spend a lot of time knowing how people's families are doing and what other dynamics might be going on in their families that impact them or what they're working on or where they want to go in their careers and I think that has really enabled me to build a stronger connection with people that I work with. Also in Asian American communities there's this notion of elders and the elders are people older than you and and people who are generally more wise than you and there's a tremendous amount of respect for one's elders. There's also a tremendous amount of responsibility that is placed on elders Elders have a responsibility for helping the younger generations come up and learn and be successful. And so I think I've taken on that responsibility significantly. I view myself as an elder in the business world. And so I invest a lot in identifying people who have potential. And coaching them and helping them find their way and giving them feedback and advice when they may not always be asking for it, because that's actually the role of an elder is to recognize when someone might need support and to give them support. And so those are some of the ways that I think my Asian American heritage has influenced the way that I lead in the business world.
2: And dovetailing off of that, Seema, one very special junior person of your team with you as the elder at the helm is your daughter. And you mentioned this briefly when you know, you're know you talking about her reading and her mimicking what she sees in behavior in adults. We've, we've touched on this a bit with some other guests on the show of, you know, you're kind of like the second generation here in the U.S., right? You saw your parents struggle, go through the immigrant experience. And You've done a ton of learning and unlearning and unpacking, reflecting on your own identity to now almost shift the paradigm a bit for what you envision for the future. And I'd be really curious when you think about your experiences so far, and especially your experiences as an Asian American woman in the workplace, what kinds of values or learnings you'd want to impart upon your daughter going forward?
0: I have done so much reflection on that. And I think there are so many values from my own upbringing that my husband and I want to impart upon our children, and there are some new ones. The ones that we want to keep with us and impart upon our children are values around hard work and family and respect for others and a sense of community and a a love for one's own heritage. The, the additional ones that we are bringing into our children's lives are much more critical thinking. So, not going along to get, to get along, but thinking for yourself. So, much, much greater individualism and critical thinking, a much greater emphasis on the social and liberal arts. You know, growing up, education was always very important, but it was always on math and science or, you know, the the harder skills. And we are focusing on the importance of fiction and poetry and art and music. And we are also, we, we have a, a strong value that we're placing on knowing oneself, on, you know, what does your inner voice tell you? So, not what will other people think, but what do you think? What do you feel and believe in your heart?
1: Yeah, I'm sitting here smiling because I think, uh, you know, my, my parents thought a lot about these things too. And they thought a lot about how they can bring in their, Indian identity and their Indian upbringing and so many of the positive things that come apart come from that part of their identity but then also adjusting to what this new environment that they're in and, and how to be successful here you know like think about your family but go do what you want to do because maybe then you'll come back and support your family even more you know like like certain things like that which are adjusted for like the western world that we live in and you can succeed by doing well in education but that education could be like artwork or poetry um, I love that. Seema, one way that we like to end the uh, podcast um, is by asking what was, what would something when you were starting your career that, you know, you did really well for yourself or something that you wish you had done better, or, or just generally speaking, like what type of advice would you give someone who is just starting their career?
0: I think it's really important to adopt a growth mindset. A growth mindset is one that believes that we, our minds, our brains, are adaptable; that we can develop a new skill set or get better at something. And the corollary to that is a fixed mindset, which believes that your abilities, your skill set, is is fixed. If you're not familiar with the concept, there's a phenomenal book called Growth Mindset by uh, a wonderful woman named Carol Dweck, and she gives this example of let's say a person interviews for a job and doesn't get the job. A person who has a growth mindset responds differently to that experience from somebody who has a fixed mindset. Person who has a growth mindset says, well, I didn't get it this time. Let me figure out what I didn't do well. I'm gonna go work on that skill. And the next time I apply for a job like this, I'm gonna get it. A person by contrast, who has a fixed mindset says, Oh well, I didn't get this job. I'm not good at this. I don't have the skill set. I should stop applying for those kinds of jobs. And earlier in my career, I believed in the concept of a fixed mindset. And then when I read this book, my eyes were completely opened to how things actually worked. And it had a tremendous impact on my focusing on learning new skills and, and growing and getting getting me to where I am today.
1: Timo, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast. Thank you so much for being vulnerable. Thank you for sharing your story. It was wonderful to have you on.
0: Thank you, Jaydeep. And thank you, Angie, you've been wonderful hosts. And thank you for the opportunity to share my story.
2: Thanks so much for tuning in to Cross the Lines with your hosts, Angie and Jay. If you enjoyed today's conversation about the intersection of work and Asian-American identity, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a review to spread the word. We'd really appreciate it.
1: And as always, you can head over to across the lines to learn more about the show as well as check out all the links and resources in the show notes. That's all for this episode, folks. See you next time.